If you've been here the last couple of weeks, we've been in the book of Acts. Um, Acts, if you're new to the Bible, new to the church, is tells the, the, the earliest kind of accounts of the most dynamic and diverse movement really in the history of the world, which is the church. And so it's a pretty amazing account written by Luke, historian, doctor, lots and lots of details. Kind of a fun fact there, he gives falsifiable details which means that he provides so much information so that early people could have been like, no, that didn't happen, I talked to so-and-so. It's why a lot of the details there. However, we're not in Acts today. Um, we're gonna be back in the Psalms. Gary decided to plan a little like whiplash for you because it's Child Dedication Sunday. And so we're gonna be in Psalm 139. And so if you come back, we'll continue in Acts next time. But today, you can turn to the Psalms, Psalm 139 in particular. And actually, one of the families right over here, their scripture was Psalm 139. Um, you, you may have caught that, for I'm fearfully, wonderfully made. That's a part of where we're going. It makes sense. It's Child Dedication Sunday. You'll get it. The Psalms, again, if you're new... We preached through a bunch of them this summer. This one didn't fit, so it got postponed. But the Psalms are songs, poetry, praise, written to God. And it, it, uh, some of them are laments. They, they do all sorts of different kinds of things. But they, our summer series was called Words That Know Me because they often express what's going on in here better than we can. And so God gives us those words. Today, we read a psalm uh, traditionally ascribed to David, who uh, lived a thousand years before Jesus. And so most famous king probably for most of, of, uh, of Israel. And so that's where we are. I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump in. Kind of our, our big point today as we go through the text is gonna be that you, you as an individual, you and all of your quirks and personality traits and uniqueness and some of the weird stuff, all, you are intimately known by God and incredibly loved by God. Those are the two things. You are intimately known and incredibly loved. And so we're going to go through the first three stanzas, but we're actually going to work our, work our way backwards. We're going to start at verse 13 through 16. Um, and if you ask why, it's, well, I'm preaching it, so I get to go in the order I want. Um, no, it's poetry. It works. It's poetry. I'm not abusing the text or anything. It'll make more sense as we go through. Starting in verse 13. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Again, some of your translations will say fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wondrous. And I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them came to pass. This whole psalm, David takes a tone really of awe at the majesty of God. And the psalm is about the ever-present all-knowing God. And here, really at the, at the center of the psalm, is this reflection on just how intimately and intentionally God was involved in the formation of David in the womb. My first point for us to consider, you were custom made by God. You, 
custom made. Intimately and intentionally involved was God. You are not random. Your quirks, your personality, the things that make you unique, they're not random. Now back up for a second. My wife and I, we are completely different people. Totally, totally different. She's an extrovert. I'm an introvert. Um, you know, she looks at a space and thinks, how do we make it warm? I look at it, how do we make it functional? You know, the list goes on and on. I'm sure other people with roommates can relate. One of the stories that we've shared in the past with couples we do premarital counseling with is, is kind of the different ways that we operate within our home when there's a lot to do. My wife will move kind of with a thousand tasks on her mind, kind of move through all of them together. And I mean, she's got the kids, meal planning, cleaning projects, just a lot going on all at once. And she can kind of, kind of, kind of move through all of them. She'll joke at times, you know, cleaning while, there's kid, while kids are awake is like brushing your teeth while eating Oreos. You know what I mean? But she does it. Like, nonetheless, she just kind of... For me, on the other hand, if my wife leaves for an hour or if she kind of lays down to take a nap, I can hyper, like intensely focus on three or four things. I can get a lot done with three or four tasks. And something like she'll come home, she'll be like, how did you get all that done in an hour? I can get very intense. However, it comes at the cost of me pretty much ignoring everything that's not one of those three or four things. The things to me at that moment in time don't really matter at all. And last year, there was a moment in which I kind of was coming out of that like zone that I was in. And one of them is usually my children. I'm not neglecting them completely, I promise. But I'm coming out of that zone. And I remember looking up and in the kitchen and in the bathroom, every cabinet was open. <laughs> and earlier on in my marriage, I'd be like, oh, no big deal. Now I've learned better. But still... It just didn't matter to me. It just didn't, when I was, it just didn't matter. Things fall through the crowd. We're different. One of the keys though in our marriage as we've grown to love one another well is to see where certain strengths come at the cost of other weaknesses so that we can love and appreciate the strengths that God has gifted us. Why? Because we're custom made, we're unique, we're different. We're designed that way. Your differences, your quirks, your personality, their gifts, the quiet, the shy, the tender, the aggressive, the bold. I see these differences in my own kids. When I see shyness, one of my kids, I don't need to pray the quietness out of them. I want it to become a godly quietness, a quiet boldness, a tender strength and fortitude. God has wired my kids uniquely. I may see one of my kids and see aggression, perhaps with more than one of my children. The desire to constantly fight with a sibling, to go to battle, and it's a pretty amazing thing to see in a child so young, that kind of temperament. But what if that kind of temperament can get pointed at the injustices of society? You got a world changer. What if that kind of aggression can be funneled into spiritual warfare or fervent prayer? You got a world changer. I believe in an age in which our lives are saturated with so much media, it's easy for us to find ourselves wishing, maybe that's a strong word, imagining, you know, our roommate, our friend, our spouse, our kid, or even ourselves. If only we were just a little bit less, dot, dot, dot. We could be like that. Or just a little bit more, dot, dot, dot. We could be like that. But the truth is, the truth is, my goal for myself 
my goal for my spouse, my goal for my closest friend, my goal for my kids isn't that they would be more like that person. My goal would be that they become the godliest version of themselves. Whatever that is, the version of themselves that looks most like Jesus. And there's so much temptation to compare ourselves to the people doing whatever it might be on YouTube, on Instagram, on the new, whatever. As opposed to saying, God, what does it look like for me to glorify you in the way you made me to? Because along with all those quirks and personalities and all the things that make you unique comes a purpose that God has for you, not for the people around you. Job 10 verse 11 He echoes this, you clothed me with skin and flesh, wove me together with bones and tendons. Psalm 119, your hands made me and formed me. Give me understanding so that I can learn your commands. This beautiful idea that God is intimately involved and intentional in shaping you to be you. But over time, one of the things... has happened to our culture, that's happened to our world. Really the big problem that we are encountered, that we encounter when we come to a text like this is that God has often been pulled from the equation. This is all about God's involvement in the formation of a new soul. What happens to your purpose? What happens to the purpose of a child? What happens when you strip the divine touch away from the formation of a new soul? Well, what happens to that purpose? Well, you, you shape your purpose for yourself. But is that so bad? What happens to your identity? Your identity becomes something you forge yourself rather than something you receive. Which, by the way, if you've been watching Disney or Pixar for like the last 15 years, this is a huge recurring theme. You don't get your identity from someone else. You come up with it on your own. It's huge among kids' content the last 10 or 15 years. But when things get hard or stressful, when things get despairing or hopeless, what are you left with when all of your hope and identity comes from in here? You're left empty, purposeless, without an anchor. The truth is just so much better. What we've read this morning is just so much better that you are not the result of random that you were not shaped merely because your parents had sex and nature took over, but that God has been intimately involved in the process, that it's God's process, not ours, not nature's, it's God's process. And our identity, our hope is anchored to something that is immovable and unshakable, not something that wavers in the winds of culture. That's important. Now, some might object. Some of you may ask, if God is so intimately involved, Why do I have the challenges that I do? Why was I born with this sickness or this infirmity? Why was I born with this limitation? Why do I feel like I'm in the wrong body? Why am I attracted to people I don't want to be attracted to? The list goes on and on. And so I'm going I'm to read a quote to you that I think handles this really well. I'm going I'm to preface this. This is from a, a cinematic portrayal of a, of a conversation between Jesus and one of his followers who has, who has an impediment. And in this, in this conversation, this is not in scripture. It is scriptural. 
meaning I could walk through these exact points myself and as opposed to giving it to you as a narration. The concepts here are biblical cover to cover. So just hear this. You're not going to find it in the Bible, but it portrays the concept. So listen, in this conversation, Jesus says, in the Father's will, I could heal you right now and you'd have a good story to tell. But there are dozens that can tell that story, hundreds, even thousands. But think of the story you have in this journey if I do not heal you. To know how to proclaim that you still praise God in spite of this. To know how to focus on all that matters so much more than the body. To show people that you can be patient with your suffering here on earth because you know you'll spend eternity with no suffering. Not everyone can understand that. The disciple responds, I know how easy it is to sing the song of David that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, quoting our passage today, but it doesn't make this life any easier. To which Jesus closes, are you fast? Do you look impressive when you walk? Maybe not. But these are things the Father doesn't care about. When you pass from this earth and you meet your Father in heaven, where Isaiah promises you will leap like a deer, your reward will be great. Paul, capturing the substance of, the, again, the cinematic portrayal, writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writes, For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. Our light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. That's real. It's as real as the affliction is real. For those who need to hear that, it doesn't negate the fact that you are custom made, that God was as intimately and intentionally involved with you as he was anyone else. Continuing on, verse seven, Psalm 139. David writes, where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? By the way, remember the tone is awe. David is marveling at God's ever-presentness, ever his all-knowingness. And so he's not complaining right now, okay? Just, if I go up to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I live at the western horizon, eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, some of your translations say sea because the sea was the western limit. What is he doing there? No matter how high or low, east or west, God's there. Even, your, even there, your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night. Because that's what we do. When we're stuck in something, we just want to hide. We just want darkness to cover us. But what does he say? What, what does God do? Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are like, alike to you. That there is no place that is so dark that the light of God cannot pierce. One Old Testament scholar referring to the, the use of the word light throughout the Old Testament said light is often used to symbolize Yahweh in action. And there is no place so dark that God cannot go. My second point. There is no place that you can go that would be beyond him. There is no place. There is no place I can go to get beyond God. And what's interesting, there's a story in the Old Testament, an account of a prophet named Jonah, in which we see this in, in two different parts. You see, because God comes to Jonah and says, hey, I want you to go proclaim to Nineveh. 
God wanted Jonah to go to Nineveh to proclaim truth. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Assyrians did terrible, horrendous things. I heard a historian once kind of go through the brutality, the different uh, uh, torture mechanisms that they afflicted against the Jews, and it made me squeamish. I'll never even repeat it in a sermon. It was just barbaric. And God told Jonah, you go there. But in Jonah's mind, that should have been beyond God. It's too dark. It's too dark for the light to go there. God shouldn't want to go there. Jonah didn't want to go there. He'd rather them just be judged. And so what did Jonah do? He ran. Jonah tried to get beyond God in order to keep the people he thought should be beyond God from God. But there is no place beyond God. And so Jonah ends up on a ship and he gets, ends up tossed in water and he ends up taken by a fish and from the belly of the fish, we see him cry out. In Jonah 2, verse 7 through 10, as my life was fading away, I remember the Lord. And my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. There was no place beyond him, including the utter depths of the ocean. Now, I remember hearing my English teacher, my freshman year of high school, share his testimony. He, he was one of the leaders at my youth group, and, and he shared his testimony. I'll never forget, he, he talked about how he was at a party. He's a water polo player, and there was a water, a bunch of them were having a party, and he was sitting on a couch, like 16 years old, drinking a beer, surrounded by people doing things they probably weren't supposed to do, doing some of those, some of those things themselves. And he said, you remember, God met him in that moment, pierced his heart, like his, his life and heart changed in that moment, realizing, nope, this isn't, this isn't where I'm supposed to be. And things pivoted from there on out. I've heard so many testimonies that begin with, well, I was in jail, dot, dot, dot. Why? Because there's no place beyond him. This includes the dark and unholy places of our world, the strip clubs, the brothels, the places people go to lie, cheat, and steal to plan their crimes, to unleash their violence. And so we pray. When I was in, I was in Costa Rica a number of years ago, we went to the brothels and we just, we stood in front of the brothels. We, we prayed and we didn't just pray for the women inside, we pray for the men walking inside. Because if you do something to the demand, something ends up happening to the supply. We pray. This includes our capital, our White House. This includes Russia and Ukraine. This includes Israel and Gaza. The covert buildings where Hamas's meetings are taking place. There is no place beyond him. This is why we pray. If Nineveh could be redeemed, church, why not the Ninevehs of today? Our final stanza. Verse one. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. This is something you see a lot in poetry throughout the Old Testament, by the way, in which two kind of opposing ideals are meant to give a sense of completeness. And so God knows when I sit. He knows when I stand. God knows when I do whatever I do. 
Okay, sense of completeness. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. Stop there for a moment. Think about this, that God knows all the things, which means he would know every sinful thought, every lie, uttered, every bit of gossip that's rolled off my tongue, every lustful thought, every moment of coveting, every bit of gossip. So you think about all the things that he knows, the things that would be shame-inducing, distance-causing. I just love when we get to verse 5, he says, you've encircled me, you've placed your hand on me. We get just this wonderful glimpse of the graciousness of God, almost like the prodigal, the father from the son, the story of the prodigal son in which the one who was lost comes and the dad just grips him. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. I am unable to reach it. God is all knowing is the point of these six verses. He is all knowing. And in that his ways are above our ways, his thoughts above our, above our own. What do I want to take away here? There's nothing you can hide from him. There's nothing you can hide from him. He's all-knowing and there's nothing you can hide from him. Now, our culture has created a cheap knockoff of this reality. And we're getting into that season, so you might have already heard this if you've gone shopping, but that cheap knockoff of this divine reality sounds something like this. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. It's the reason I'm not on the worship team. Yes, yes, if, if you hear that and you're like creepy, yes, it's because it is. If this were true of an acquaintance, of a friend, of a neighbor, your response would be distance, you'd get a restraining order, okay? You would. If this, this idea of someone knowing all there is to know about you were true of an enemy, someone who sought to do you harm, you'd seek protection, your response would be caution. How do we respond when it's true? of an all-knowing God who made you and knows you better than you know yourself. In John 4, we actually get a glimpse of exactly that. How do you respond when someone knows everything about you? We see Jesus go with his disciples. We see him go intentionally through Samaria instead of skipping around it like they would have because the Samaritans um, were, were, were very much looked down upon by the Jews for a lot of historic and religious reasons. But they weren't beyond God. So Jesus chose to go through and he encounters a woman at the well as he does. And in this conversation with her, there's a conversation about water and about pulling water from the well. But then Jesus kind of twists that and, and pivots into the, the reality that he is living water, that he wants to offer the kind of water in which she'll never thirst again. But she just doesn't get it. She's confused. And at some point, Jesus says, go get your husband. In John 4, we pick up in verse 16. He says, go call your husband. He told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said. For you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus reveals to her that he is the promised Messiah. Makes it abundantly clear. 
And in the process, he pretty much reads her mail in front of her. He exposes the shame. And so what does she do? What does she do when, when it becomes abundantly clear who Jesus is and what he knows? What does she do? In verse 28, we see, then the woman left her water jar, went into town and told the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and they made their way to him. And what happens to the people? Verse 39. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything I ever did. Why is that such a powerful statement? John doesn't say when she testified he was the Messiah. He could be the Messiah. No. And when she testified, he told me everything I ever did. What's so powerful about that kind of knowledge? She responded to that knowledge by going, one, by, by being changed and go introducing that change to others. Why? Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, I believe answers this question profoundly. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear but to be fully known and truly loved, well, it's a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of self-righteousness and it fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. I do believe that as she left, the reason she didn't go hide in a corner because someone exposed her, the reason she didn't uh, go away ashamed someplace, but instead was willing to pronounce what she had encountered is because she left feeling both fully known and truly loved. The God who made you, the God whom you can never get beyond, the God who knows everything about you, he came to die for you on a cross that you would be his and that he would be yours. That's the truth. He is a just God, and because he is just, he commands obedience, but he graciously restores the disobedient, which is a good thing, because that's me. He is a holy God, and because of that, he requires holiness, but he lovingly pursues the unholy, which is a good thing, because that's me. He is a merciful God that calls his own to godliness, but he sacrificially died for the ungodly, which is a good thing, because that's me. What does such a reality do for you? For me, it is a reminder of the awe that David probably felt when he wrote this psalm. An awe that I do believe should overtake us as well. And if you're in a place this morning where you're feeling that awe for the first time, where you feel like God has graciously restored you even in your disobedience, lovingly pursued you even in your unholiness, sacrificially died for you even in your ungodliness for the first time. I'm going to pray and you can pray along with me. Bow our heads. God, we are sinners in need of a savior. We confess that we are sinful. We confess that we have wronged you, that we have rebelled against you, that we have run away from you at times. But God, we acknowledge that you and you alone pave a way. God, we want you. We trust you. We thank you for dying on the cross for our sin.
We thank you for the price that you paid for the life that you lived. We're done doing it on our own. We need you to take over. Some of us here have gotten away from this. And so Lord, we affirm today, we need you to take the keys again. We need to get in the back seat. We need you to start driving. Lord, we confess our pride, our lust, our vanity, our greed. Lord, we ask, Holy Spirit, would you strip those things from us that we would love and live and look like Jesus the way we were designed. To you be the glory. In Jesus' mighty and matchless name we pray. Amen.